0: Welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live Podcast with your hosts Mike Gore, James Casina, and Jocelyn Gotto. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live Podcast. My name is Joss and I am one of your hosts and we are so grateful to have you with us again this month. We are just so blown away by the amount of people that listen to this podcast who tune in every single month from all around the world our producer beth told us the other day there's someone listening in bulgaria which is just amazing so if you're that person thanks so much for tuning in and we are just so grateful for all of you to be able to do this journey with you Uh, We truly believe that the persecuted church are the perfect mentors for our faith. They are bold, passionate, committed followers of Jesus that we just have so much to learn from. So we are so grateful to do this journey with you and we thank you for tuning in every month. I'm really excited for today's episode because we have something really special planned for you. We have a guest speaker. His name is Dr. Ron Boyd-McMillan. And Mike had the chance to sit down and interview him earlier this week. He is an amazing man. He has been with Open Doors Ministry on and off for over 40 years. He has smuggled Bibles during the Cold War. He's trained preachers in underground churches in China, pastored a church of his own, and has a deep understanding around the theology of persecution. He's a journalist, an amazing man of God, and I'm so excited for you to listen to this month's content. So without further ado, here is an interview between Mike Gore and Dr. Ron Boyd-McMillan.
1: Well, Ron, welcome to the Open Doors Live podcast. Thank you, Mike. Lovely to be with you. You know, I've been wanting to have you on this podcast for a very long time, but because we live so far away from each other, it's been a really difficult thing to organise. So having you here in Australia, it's going to be a fantastic podcast for our listeners. I think knowing a bit of your backstory and your life story, it's going to be absolutely intriguing to all of our listeners. And so you haven't always worked with Open Doors. And for our listeners, uh, where, where was one of your first sort of major career roles?
2: I suppose my background is journalism. And uh, certainly in the eighties, I was working with Time Magazine, based in Hong Kong, and uh, one of my jobs really was to travel around Asia, all the way to India and up to Korea, and uh, cover the kind of politics and economics of the of the region. It was fascinating stuff. Yeah,
1: I know a little bit of your time with Time Magazine. Can you tell maybe just to give us a bit of an idea of what that looks like? I mean, we hear so many of our listeners will know of Time Magazine; they have a perception of journalism. And then when you had the political side of it to the question, people start thinking, well, what does that look like? But any one or two stories that stand out to you from your time with the magazine? It's
2: difficult because Time Magazine was a world weekly. So you had to really be standing next to an assassination or an explosion or something terribly, terribly important to get any of your stuff in. The thing I remember the most though, is that I actually was a witness to the Channenman massacre in June the 4th, 1989. I was part of the Foreign Press Corps. In fact, I didn't actually think that anything was going to happen uh, because, you know, the students were drifting away from the square. They were pro-democracy demonstrators and they'd occupied the square for about six, eight weeks by then. Mm. And, of course, on June the 4th, the Foreign Press were all locked in this hotel, the Beijing Hotel, and we all went up to the roof because we heard shooting. And sure enough, there were the tanks coming in and the soldiers and they were just massacring uh, any student that crossed their path wow. and that was a horrible thing to witness. The following day actually I went to the hospitals to try to count the, count the wounded and uh, the hospitals that we visited anyway were all completely empty, no patients at all. And we discovered later that uh, the army had come in in the night and instead of deciding who was a student and who wasn't they just took everybody and uh, they were all killed. So if you were, you know, an elderly man with a an ingrowing toenail, tough. Mm. This is what uh, what that government did to um, to silence the people and uh, it's a, a fateful night, I, I do remember it very well. Of, of all the blood that was spilled and the things that I saw as a foreign correspondent, <laughs> in some ways the most horrifying memory are those nice, clean, empty hospital wards devoid of any patients.
1: I remember talking with you off air about this. And so many, I guess, secular media agencies, and the numbers somewhat rubbery, I guess, is, you know, 400, 500. You know, anyway, measured in the hundreds of people killed in that massacre, a massacre that I remember even studying in school. Uh, what, what figure would you put? The best figure I've seen is
2: about 5,000 um, in Beijing itself. Um, they talk about the Tiananmen incident now, and they say some hundreds rather vaguely. But that, that is propaganda.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's something I'd never thought of. The, the most haunting image being those empty hospital wards. So perfectly made, beds clean, pristine clean, but entirely empty. And I, I think it was you, you visited three hospitals. Right? It wasn't just one, you visited yes, several.
2: That's right. There may have been others where, where there were genuinely injured and, and normal people. But but the ones we visited uh, were, were quite close to where the massacre happened. And, uh, and so a lot of the students had been brought there so uh so that was why they were so targeted
1: Mm. and i remember talking to you as well and you've talked about all sorts of different countries you've been in different articles you've written you've had the opportunity of interviewing people like whitney houston and eric clapton i mean incredibly famous and well-known people not only political figures but entertainers as well but following that time with the magazine you decided to get out of that and jump into more religious-based work because you were a Christian during those days with Time magazine or sure
2: I think I've always really been a Christian I was raised in a Christian family and although you say the sinner's prayer you say the sinner's prayer about you know 3,000 times so you never know quite which one clicks mm. um, so I was raised in a Christian family and uh, although in my teens I wanted to be anything but uh, my parents lived a, a very consistent and delightful Christian life in front of me and you can't really walk away from what works. Uh, that would be really dumb. So, so I kept at it. Uh, but I left time because I was concerned that they were only profiling society through the lenses of politics and economics. They didn't really take religion seriously as a factor by itself. And of course, that is partly a, a, a secular failing. You, you see it around today. The idea is simply that religion is the outcome of deeper things like like politics and economics. And, and that's not true. Religion probably is deeper and politics and economics are the outcome of religion. But, uh, it's, it wasn't that way around. So I left at that point and, um, co-started a news agency called News Network International in 1988. And that was the first news agency of its kind to specialize entirely in religious conflict. And, uh, it was edited out of out of Southern California, but we had two big bureaus, and uh, one of them was Hong Kong covering Asia, and another was in Ankara, Turkey covering the Middle East.
1: I remember speaking with you about some of your first exposures. You were uh, born as a Scot, grew up in Northern Ireland, I believe, yeah. uh, amongst uh, all of the sort of the wrestle and the conflict of there, a passionate Protestant, as, as so I guess you would say, living in that in that world anyway, where you had to choose one or the other, you were Protestant, but, Tell me about your first exposure. First, Open Doors is so well-known, I guess, throughout the years for smuggling Bibles. You know, Brother Andrew began the ministry in 1955 and smuggled Bibles in behind the Iron Curtain. And, you know, in so many ways, so many of the people back in those years, 70s, 80s, that started with the ministry, you got your stripes through smuggling, right? Or, Or getting exposure to the work that we did. Tell me, being a Protestant, what was your first smuggling experience with Open Doors? Like, and did it push your understanding of acceptable Christianity to its limits. Yes,
2: it jived actually with a conversation I had with Brother Andrew when I started out. And he actually said, he said, Ron, you're going to have a really great adventure with Open Doors. And he said, but you're also going to carry a rather large wound. And I said, oh, he said, the adventure is that you will travel around the whole body of Christ and you'll realize it's a lot bigger than you think. Mm. But he said, the wound is that you'll come back to your local church and you'll be an orphan wow. because you'll have seen too much. And you'll never really quite be comfortable in the the churches that you were raised in anymore because your exposure is too great. Mm. You'll always have a kind of outsider status or outsider eyes. And he was right. I mean, the first time I went to, to, uh, to Poland, this was the, my first trip smuggling Bibles, I was really quite astonished to find that... Uh, our contact was a Catholic nun. And uh, this was quite a stretch for a Northern Ireland Protestant because the essence of living in Northern Ireland, at least through that period, was that you never met a Catholic. Uh, It was total segregation. And when you are completely segregated, you can believe anything about the other. Uh, That's that's the danger of tribalism. Um, It creates massive prejudice and you never get that prejudice checked by reality.
1: When, when Brother Andrew first asked you to go, were you aware it was a nun, or did he kind of set you up for something?
2: No, I had no clue. I didn't even know we worked with Catholics. And uh, so when I got there, I had to deliver Bibles to this nun.
1: And Sorry, that, that would have been a pretty big thing for you, being a Protestant, growing up in Northern Ireland, and the whole Catholic versus Protestant thing. That, that would have, you, you wouldn't have been happy with that. I, 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 yeah, I, that, is first, my guess. The first yeah. thing I
2: tried to do was to convert her.
1: <laughs> okay,
2: of course. Um, I didn't go down too well. And, uh, and she told me her testimony, actually, which kind of really solved a lot of the problem because she had such a remarkable testimony that it was pretty obvious that God was with her. But this mm. was a big breakthrough to me, you know, because I was so, you know, I've been, I was really coming up from a, from a ghetto. Um, she'd been a Czech resistance fighter, actually, and she'd got wonderfully converted. And she used to give out scriptures on trains, in communist Poland and uh, one day she gave a, a tract to a communist party official or a secret policeman who was on the train and he said, you know, I'm so sick of you people, I'm going to throw you off the train. And he said, but there's a bridge coming up, so if I throw you off there, you'll surely die because um, you'll either hit the hit the bridge or you'll fall th- you know, hundreds of feet to your death. And so that's sure enough, that's what he did. He threw her off the train when they went over the bridge. Turns out, though, that she actually didn't hit the iron stanchions, you know, that made mm. up the bridge. That was a miracle enough. And then she fell hundreds of feet, though. But there was a huge open barge underneath, and it was full of dead chickens. <laughs> and she went bouncing into this, this kind of like this massive feather bed. <laughs> and, uh, and so she was saved. And uh, I'm listening to this thinking, God's with this lady. Uh, so i had to admit that uh, god was bigger yeah and that uh, she was definitely in the kingdom and it wasn't my job to to start uh, deciding who was a christian and who was not you know when it when it came to testimonies like that (laughs) so i mean i still think that you've got to watch churches i had a an an amazing experience in leningrad as it was then or st petersburg now i was delivering bibles to a russian uh, an orthodox bishop and he was a lovely man and he took the bibles and so on but then he put on his robes and he became a different person and uh, i lined up in the church to receive communion uh, and he saw me and then he he stopped everything and he came down and he pointed a finger in my face and said you you're not orthodox you get out of the church Wow, And so I turned around. I mean, I had, you know, I had been presumptuous. I, I didn't realize that, that people who weren't Orthodox couldn't take communion. But, uh, but still, it was a humiliating experience for uh, someone in their early 20s. Mm. And so I left the church thinking, I'll never come back to this kind of church. Thank you very much. But actually, what had happened was one of the priests who was celebrating communion with the bishop ran after me. And he said, here, take this. And it was a piece of the consecrated bread. And I said, he said, take it, you know, uh, you're welcome. And I said, you could get into big trouble for this. And he said, yes, I know. But he said, I have discovered that it is very, very important to love others more than your church will will let you. That's beautiful. And he said, "That's the that's that's what is required for following Jesus. Sometimes you have to love others more than your church will let you." I've never forgotten that, because um, there is a although church is a wonderful institution and uh, it is a place where we discover faith and are nurtured in faith and sometimes carried in faith, but it can also um, it can also betray the larger vision of God uh, and restrict it unnecessarily. And so there are times in which you have to look out and uh, see where God is up to in the culture and catch up to it in a way that sometimes your church is not comfortable
1: with. Mm. Well, one of the things I've always loved about the work of Open Doors, as I look at it in Western cultures, and it's one of the things we talk on this podcast a lot about, is positioning the persecuted church as almost mentors to our faith, because the wrestle all of us, the world over faces, how do we follow Jesus in today's society and culture? We look around and we see rapidly changing freedoms around religion and, and sex and sexuality, even food, all these kind of things. And in the middle of that, there seems to be a wrestle with people asking, hey, well, is has got happy with me, or how do I follow him? Am I doing it right? Those kind of things. But the persecuted church by name are people who have overcome the bonds of culture to remain courageously close to Jesus. And having known you really well, one of the things I think makes you incredible is your ability to almost draw out lessons, leadership lessons from the persecuted church and contextualize them to Western cultures, churches, whether it be USA, UK, wherever our listeners are from today, Australia, New Zealand, and, and one of the things I'd love us to do today is maybe if I could flesh out with you some of the things that you call the unpalatables. I always love your kind of poetic way of articulating things, but you have a, a series of unpalatables and essentially they're leadership lessons from the persecuted church. Are you, are you able to walk us through some of those today?
2: Yes. I always try to encourage people to have a relationship with the persecuted that's kind of like this. I say, what, what they need, I give. What they learn, I need. It's good. And so the idea is that they've discovered things about God, aspects about God, that we need to encounter through them, uh, just as they need to receive some teaching from us, so they show us a side of God, perhaps a side of the Mm -hmm. faith that we can't otherwise discover without their help. So I sat uh, some of them down over a period of three, four years and started to kind of nail down what their essential truths were that they would offer to the wider world and we've ended up calling them the five unpalatable truths because they're not attractive certainly as uh, as propositions you know they're, they're quite finger waggy but um mm-hmm. but you have to kind of accept them uh in, in the spirit that they gave one uh they say is if jesus is not your first love you're finished
1: Always love the. Pers- that it was always so provocative with the persecuted churches, yeah. and they? they're never sort of waffly or abstract. They're always pretty direct and quite provocative.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, that that's pretty straight. And here's another one: if evil is leaving you alone, you're irrelevant. And it's the idea, really, which is very basic to persecution, that uh, Christ has enemies, and when we align ourselves with Christ, His enemies become our enemies. And so, if you threaten evil it comes after you. Well, that's persecution, because persecution is simply to be pursued. And uh, you should be threatening evil in whatever form it comes anywhere. But of course, it's always in a more extreme form when we look at, you know, places like North Korea and China and Somalia and so on. Um, I mean, if I was to take you to my house church in Beijing that I'm a member of, we start the service by going round all the congregation with the same question. What are your wounds for Christ this week? Wow. And that can take two, three hours, depending on how many are there. And the idea is quite simply to drive people to realize, well, how is the battle showing up in your life? If it's not, maybe you're not threatening evil.
1: Our listeners will know or have heard me often say, Ron, that persecution... We look at it as like a consequence, a hallmark of successful Christianity, because wherever their gospel is being shared, persecution exists. And so the last unpalable you spoke about and Brother Andrew's kind of provocative statement, it really does dovetail into all of my experiences, but also what I see echoed in the scriptures, because every instance of persecution in the Bible, whether directed at Jesus or his followers, was always and only ever linked to a public profession of faith, a public outworking of faith, or an outworking of faith in community, the church. And and so I, I really think there is a resonance there, again, at what makes the ministry of Open Doors so beautiful because, you know, you sort of come forward to 2020, you, you find a, a cause, you slap an organisation in the middle of it and, and all of a sudden people start questioning trust. But what I've loved about Open Doors is I, I really believe, you know, number one, we're not here to end persecution. We're not even here to stop it growing. We're here to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can. But number two... We're not here to promote an organization. We're here to try and unite, unify, and ensure the future of the global church. And, and so, hearing that last couple of lessons have been fantastic. But the three others, what are they?
2: Uh, one was called If Fruit Is Required from Your Witness, Your Faith Less. What they mean by that is that persecuted Christians don't often live long enough to see the fruit of their witness.
1: Mm.
2: But you leave that with God. If you need a list of achievements to say, oh, I really counted for God, why? You know, you're faithless. Uh, Leave it with God. That's the idea. And another one is if prayer isn't about asking the impossible, it's boring. (laughs) (laughs) I like that because, you know, so often we have experienced prayer in in Western church settings as working through a kind of laundry list, and uh, it, it can be quite wearying because people don't, don't find it very exciting, uh, especially when there aren't obvious answers to prayer. But what they mean is that, ask the impossible in prayer, and then watch, Mm. and then you'll see that it will actually become really quite an amazing intercessory adventure. And of course, they do live in life and death situations a lot of the time. If you are a farmer in northern Colombia, for example, and I was there just last year, the Christian farmer is always in trouble because they refuse to grow the coca leaf.
1: Mm.
2: Uh, they don't want to to contribute to the cocaine trade. Well, that really causes them problems with the cartels. and And so they're really targeted for that. So they would be getting on their knees and asking that because they're growing another crop that they're not sending gunmen to kill them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the... These are the intercessory dilemmas that uh, the persecuted are bringing to God, so it's massively exciting. Of course, you know, we we have to import some of that over, but we're not necessarily always in a life and death setting, and thank God. But, uh, But we do need to ask the impossible. John Haggai always used to say, set yourself to do something so impossible for God, that unless God is in it, it will fail. That's the stuff of, of intercession. And then there's another one. Uh, the final one was, if praise is not on your tongue, you're dead. Wow. And that's the idea that, that persecuted Christians very often, particularly in jails, for example, have a kind of a ruthless determination to praise God every day. Mm. Astonishing. And, uh, and they believe that that gratitude is what gives them the resilience in adversity. And of course, it's them going back to their essential identity as human beings. Remember in Romans 1, sin comes into the world, it says, because men and women did not give thanks to God Mm. and remember him as God, and then their minds were darkened and all the consequences come in. So if you set yourself to be grateful, to look up to the Father and be thankful, you're alive. And in the Old Testament, actually, there is uh, very strong evidence that in ancient Israel, the definition of life was praise. Praise had to be on the tongue for you to be alive. It didn't have anything to do with you had a beating heart or a brainwave pattern. It was, it was uh, those who were alive spoke out their praise to God. If you weren't speaking praise, you were dead. Wow. And the persecuted seem to have rehabilitated that wonderful Old Testament emphasis. And this is why we often say in Open Doors, we have this emphasis, you know, dangerous faith, where we're saying, you want to make sense of your Bible? Well, there's a lot of the Bible that uh, the story of the suffering church can illuminate in ways that our own experience cannot. So listen to them, take their testimony, and you'll discover a way, a deeper way of understanding, for example, the book of Acts or the book of Job or the book of Revelation. They can shine a light that we can't generate by ourselves. So, you know, we've produced all this material for people to to discover if if they wish.
1: Now Ron alongside all of the work you do for Open Doors you also work as a uh, lecturer a theologian uh, all sorts of academic and scholarships particularly at Fuller uh, theological college Is that at seminary theological college yep, Fuller Theological thing? Seminary yeah teaching a course called Persecution Big Picture I know it's part of that course one of the one of the most or more provocative kind of parts of it that you teach is the four ways to kill your church without even knowing it. And having sat down and talked to you a little bit about that, it's not just about a church. It's really incredible to think that the four principles you're about to share with us, the breadth that they have, whether it's a church, whether it's an organization, even an individual life, the way that families and different groups of people can be really pulled apart by using the tactics of the persecutors to try and disrupt, dislodge, and destroy, ultimately, the church or individuals. Can you share some of those?
2: Three Ds. I like those three Ds. There, you do? I'll okay. preach. I'll preach very nicely. You might have to steal that and incorporate it in the course. Yeah. I mean, we teach that, we say, look, you may not think about persecution, but your persecutor is always thinking about you. And so the idea is, well, what are the tactics that the persecutor typically uses to squeeze the life out of your your own witness and your church and in, in a sense ask you to do it for him mm. so uh, we've looked at church history and we're kind of saying well we think that are probably four major tactics uh, that you can see one is uh, what we call mess with the message it's where the persecutor tries to add something to the message of christ that actually dilutes the power of, of the message. You know, your Jesus plus or Jesus minus, we, we we used to call it. Something is added into the message that is said to be just as important, but it's not. And that's what actually ruins the gospel. The early church had to figure this one out because some people tried to say, well, actually, for, for Gentiles to become Christians, they have to be Jews first. You know, that was the fatal insertion that they were talking about then. And... Uh, you know, and, and there's a house church movement in China today that does the same thing, where they teach that if you are genuinely converted, the message is you will weep by yourself for three days without without wow. stopping. And you think, well, where's that in the essential message? Mm. But it's added in. And uh, if that's what the gospel is, it's repellent, not, not helpful.
1: Because another example, more maybe uh, one from China, but I guess a maybe a more broadly understood or one that people may be aware of is, particularly within communist kind of cultures and societies, there's often an element where they will say, hey, you can preach, but it's like, you need to talk about loving your country and loving God. And then what happens is, you need to correct me if I'm wrong here, but you end up talking more about loving your country and less about loving God, although they may both coexist, one gets sort of the 80%, the other the 20 and next thing you know you've kind of messed with the message, because now it's a message about loving your country and nationalism, I guess, um, alongside a message of loving God. Is that right?
2: Exactly. Yes, I know. Or when they say, you must, you must be country-loving people and so on, which is really just a euphemism for saying, make sure you preach that it's right that the Communist Party is in charge. And suddenly, you've got a political gospel and not a real gospel. And uh, that weakens the church. The persecutor knows this. So mess with the message is, is, um, is a big one. Uh, you know, we, we sometimes say that, that prosperity theology is, is a, a nice trick of, of the enemy of the faith because you're adding a kind of formula that if you do this, if you pray in faith, if you follow these steps, you get exactly what you want materially and uh, that that can't be central to the message of christ because there's no crucifixion there's no gethsemane and so uh, that's what happens you you eviscerate suffering out of the message
1: i know a persecuted believer said they are far more worried about consumerism than they are communism
2: yes exactly because consumerism means that you think you can have christ and all the things as well Mm. whereas communism says you know choose yeah and uh, that, that focuses the, the, the mind and the heart. Wow. Yeah, so that was one. Another one is uh, compromise the community. This is really where the persecutor tries to sow some disunity into the community of the church so that it's less attractive. People don't want to join a community where people are kind of devouring each other. I mean, in the old communist days, this was quite common, where they would send someone into a church to spread a lie. And they would say, oh, you know, don't you know that the pastor is sleeping with one of the members of the choir? And this would rocket around the church as a rumor. Rarely would they tell the pastor. And suddenly, you know, he'd be preaching and uh, he might be preaching for a very long time, wondering why nobody was believing him. And so it was a deliberate strategy. Uh, But there are other ways, you know, in which the community almost compromises itself. And the persecutor knows this. In Iran, for example, it's quite a common tactic where the police will arrest a house church leader and they'll just keep him in jail and they won't do anything to him. They'll just give him tea and so on, but no no beatings up or, or no heavy interrogation. And then after three or four days, he's released and he goes back to the fellowship and it's over because they say, well, what happened? And he said, nothing happened. And half of them might say, we don't believe you. We think that you were homosexually raped and you're too ashamed to, to, to tell us. And so the church is split. It is compromised uh, because they half c- can't feel they, they can trust the pastor anymore. The, uh, the persecutor is clever. Mm. And if we're thinking of the enemies of Christ as also, you know, principalities and powers and, and, and the devil and so on, there are thousands of years of experience mm. there so uh, so we've got to watch that one
1: and um as far as just for our listeners as a point of clarification goes i think number one would be to say that when we talk particularly about that iranian story we're not saying that's the blanket way people are held in prisons in iran it can vary greatly but it is one tactic of the persecutors similarly um that the reference ron used to um, homosexual sex is that that is also a common tactic correct ron for persecutors to use as a way of demoralising, dehumanising people in Iran. So I just wanted to make sure that people are aware... It's it's very often a
2: police tactic.
1: A police tactic, that's right. But it's not we're saying this is how it happens 100% of the time. What we're saying is that it's a scale, but this is a common way that people are persecuted in that nation and at a higher level for that one that you talked about there as far as compromise of community go. I think the, the Western articulation of the leadership, I guess the leadership um, logic around that or something is that well, no matter if you ever sow doubt and mistrust, they're two of the hardest things to lead through. You know, if you want to sow them in an organisation, in a community, even in a family, I, I really believe in looking at my own role at Open Doors as a CEO here, you know, two of the hardest things to lead through are doubt and mistrust because when people start questioning you or being unable to trust you, very, very difficult. They, they almost work 100% of the time They're easy to pull down and hard to rebuild and i think that's what the whole uh, compromising the community does it's an issue of doubt and mistrust and it can be almost life-ending for people
2: yes and you always apply these to your own situation so for example is there anything that's going on in my fellowship that is disrupting the unity of the church or making the church less attractive to join so we workshop these with the pastors wherever we are in the world West and and, uh, in the more restricted countries too. And uh, one of the ways uh, that this happens, I remember a pastor saying that he had been in a church and the senior pastor had turned around and said, I don't want to hear anything negative anymore in this church. We are only going to talk about positive things. Now that compromises the community Mm. because then you come to a church and pretend everything is all right. Yeah. And that's disastrous. Who wants to join a church where everybody's pretending? That's compromised.
1: It's a terrifying, you know, I mean, not not to be over-cynical of the Western church, but I'll tell you what, when, when you first told me these four things, there were so many elements where I thought to myself, man, what? I really hope I'm, I'm not a carrier of some of these things in my church, because particularly that one you just talked about there, which was everything's always nice, everything's always yes, but actually I remember some, you know, management guru said oh it's your nose that give your yeses power and i think man i never found myself really saying no to anything it was always just yes 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 even if i meant no and i think that's so often the case in churches today is that we need to be really mindful of how our language affects the community the third of the four ways to kill your church
2: yeah uh well this is promote paralyzing people uh which sounds a bit weird but you remember that in a lot of uh, persecuted countries the state, for example, has power to appoint in churches. And uh, what they will often typically do is try to promote a type of person that is almost guaranteed to restrict growth in the church rather than promote it. In, in uh, the days of the USSR, the KGB made sure at the top of the very institutional churches, they put a lot of very elderly men in charge in the belief that if they were men in their 80s, they were distracted by their health or they would be conservative and they would, you know, chase out new initiatives and so on. And so it mostly happened. I mean, this can spectacularly backfire. But, uh, and so when we workshop something like this, it's interesting that one of the most common reactions we get, they say, we say, well, who would be a paralyzing person in your church? And I would say eight times out of ten they would say the superstar pastor. Wow. He's the paralyzing person because they tend to build the church around their own charisma rather than around Christ. And yet, of course, it doesn't look like paralysis because, you know, the church is booming and the sermons are great and everybody's enthusing. But in fact, it's not a church... That is really worshiping Christ. It's wow. worship the pastor time, yeah. and uh, and when that pastor also, you know, is surrounded by a system that uh, refuses to hold them accountable, you can get serious problems. That's what we'd. This this is where this these tactics, you know, really bite in, in any context. Promote paralyzing people.
1: And, that, and that's really the, the next one, too, is the, create suffocating systems. Yeah, support a suffocating structure.
2: Mm. Because a lot of the time when you look at persecution, it's hard to say, oh, that's persecution. Uh, because very often what governments will do to restrict a church is they'll use, for example, administrative rules. You know, they'll say, no, no, you can't expand the church. In fact, we're going to have to knock down your church. But it's just a zoning law, mm. you know, where we'll move you elsewhere or whatever. And they use these structural me- methods to, um, to try to turn the church into a bureaucracy so that uh, all the emphasis really goes in on on the structure. You need structure, Mm. but you don't want to be enslaved to it. And then you suddenly Mm. find that the church is running and it's maintaining itself rather than actually being church that's looking outside itself to take the gospel to the world.
1: So the four ways to kill your church without even knowing it is to, number one, mess with the message. Number two is to compromise the community. Number three... Promote paralyzing people. And number four is to support a suffocating structure. You know, really profoundly simple in many ways, but also somewhat terrifying. You know, that whole the whole statement you made, Ron, around the chariz- or charismatic leader. You know, that, that's a really difficult one because in so many ways, part of our culture today it needs charisma it needs someone they want to follow. But similarly, there is such a fine balance as you said, between following a person and forgetting Christ. And and when I heard that, I thought to myself, man, even in open doors and organizational structure, not just churches, how often out of our best intention efforts to sort of show the world Jesus, are we actually trying to make people fall in love with us? And I think that's the wrestle. It's got to be ultimately about a relationship with Jesus rather than just the charisma of a person. So that, that's a fantastically powerful insight into the the sort of elements that can make up destruction or decay within organizations.
2: Yeah, I'm often asked, uh, you know, why is the church in the West not more persecuted? And I sometimes answer tongue-in-cheek a little. They say, because it's doing a good enough job of persecuting itself. And it's these tactics. You know, the whole point is you have to look at them because the enemy of the faith wants you to do this to the church yourself. Yeah. Uh, You help him. And, uh, and that's where, where this can get very, very subtle.
1: Now we're getting ready to, I guess, wrap up the episode for today. And it feels, you know, we're, for everyone listening, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon after a long week of speaking in different States and churches and all sorts of things around the country. And so we're feeling pretty tired, but we're running on energy, but you know, I can't think of a better way to finish than on an upper run. So do you want to tell everyone one of my favorite stories of yours? but a time that you smuggled Bibles into Transylvania.
2: Oh yes, well, <laughs> yes, this was a, a funny situation when we were driving around with lots of Bibles. We had, we had had them delivered internally to us and then we had to make multiple drops. And so the van that we were driving was full of about, I think 3,000 Bibles total, but split up into different sized boxes. And, uh, we were, we had a pretty full van and we were driving down this rather steep hill in Transylvania, Dracula country. And, um, and all of a sudden, uh, some man, a soldier, it seemed, came out of the jungle and, uh, and he was in this very resplendent gray uniform with these big gold epaulettes on his shoulders. He looked like, you know, Mussolini on parade <laughs> and, uh, and he held up his, his hand, uh, for us to stop. And of course we were, we were really going quite fast. I was driving. So I stamped on the brake and, uh, we slewed around. Uh, um, and as, as we skidded, uh, to a stop, a box of Bibles detached itself from behind my head And it flew past my nose and it went out the driver's side window, which was uh, wound down at that point. And then it continued to fly through the air and hit him straight on the head. And he went down as if he'd been poleaxed. And uh, our first thought was, my goodness, we've killed him. (laughs) And uh, we've killed him with a box of Bibles. And so we went over to him and uh, checked for a pulse. There was one, thankfully. Uh, We checked he hadn't swallowed his tongue. He hadn't. Uh, He had uh, air in his windpipe. (laughs) And uh, we just thanked God that uh, this situation had occurred and he didn't look uh, injured um, badly. (laughs) Uh, So we we checked that he was all right and uh, we pulled him into the jungle where he would wake up and uh, I wonder what his first thought would be, you know, when, when he did wake up. But uh, we didn't hang around to, to discover We took it as a deliverance. And I think that's probably been one of the most bizarre mm-hmm. deliverances uh, of uh, uh, when we were Bible smuggling. And there have been many. There have been in other situations where we were about to have our Bibles discovered at the border. And uh, somebody, uh, one of the border guards, dropped a spanner in the engine and uh, he was so angry about trying to re- retrieve the spanner which was so difficult to get at that by the time he finally had he'd forgotten that he was about to discover uh, where we had hid our bibles so uh, many people have, have wonderful experiences of this god must have really wanted bibles to get through to his church because we were not necessarily clever uh we were not uh, god's god's smart set uh, very often, we were just, you know, doing the best we could uh, with with the resources we had. But uh, he performed miracles, and uh, some of us years and years later still uh, take a faith boost from what God did in those days.
1: Yeah, you know, I love the sort of the the breadth of that lesson. We're doing the best we had with what we had, and I think even for us here as believers in Australia, New Zealand, wherever we're listening to this podcast, ultimately that's the goal, right? It's obedience driven by doing the best we can with what we have. And my hope is today has been a great encouragement to you, an insight more into maybe some of the history, the background of the people that make up the work of Open Doors and the ministry of Open Doors. Uh, Ron, thank you for your time. I know that um, you've traveled a long way to be with us today. You've still got a bit more of this trip to go across to New Zealand and a few other speaking engagements. We have a lot of resources from Ron, videos and all sorts of things that we're going to News over the next 12 months. Uh, hope to bring him back for a larger, maybe Open Doors live speaking tour in a year or so because he has so much knowledge and just incredible insights to share with us from the persecuted church. But as always, a huge thank you from all of us here at the Open Doors Live podcasting team for you being our great faithful listeners. If you have a chance, please jump on, rate, review, share this podcast. I think it's one of those episodes that people will find incredibly interesting. And just before we go, I'd love to encourage you, if you have the time, to check out our One With Them campaign. We're asking people this Easter to donate one day's wage to the persecuted church. Easter is a time where persecution intensifies. In fact, even last year, if you think back to the Sri Lankan bombings, they happened over the Easter weekend. And before that, year on year on year, we had Pakistan and Egypt and all sorts of difficult times for Christians at Easter. And so it's one of the reasons we ask you to stand in solidarity with them at Easter. It's a time they desperately need your help. And more than that, we need your help to be flexible and to be efficient and to be ready to go with support. And so we're asking the people to work one day out of the next 365 for free for the persecuted church. Donate your wage. You can do it online at onewiththem.org. You can join over a thousand people across Australia and New Zealand. Some of our great friends, like the guys from Hillsong United, Mark and Darlene check Glenn Davies, all sorts of people are getting behind this movement because they see the value in supporting the global body of Christ and helping people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. So again, Ron, thanks for being with us. We can't wait to do another episode with you.
2: Thank you, Mike. Neither can I.